Hello, Trillbilly family. This week we have a very special episode about the book Cloud Splitter by the late novelist Russell Banks. This episode is about John Brown, sort of. The reason I'm recording a preamble or caveats is that in this discussion, the line between fact and fiction often gets blurred, as it does in the book we will be discussing. You don't have to have read the book to follow along. The good thing about doing a story like this is that the spoilers are basically already out. But I do think it would make for a more enriching experience if you did read the book. Uh, but listen to this first, and then maybe go read it, because I think that this kind of gives you an introduction to some of the themes that Russell Banks is working with and will kind of put your head in the right direction as you're trying to tackle this. It's an 800-page book, so you might need a little bit of uh, spark notes or assistance. Um, I also just wanted to say that in this discussion, we are talking about the legacy of John Brown, speculating on his state of mind, blah, blah, blah. I just want to say that if you take any issue with any of it or disagree with any of it, please, before you enter my DMs or the comments and tell me how wrong I am, I guarantee you I have probably already thought about those things myself. This is an episode that we go deep into reflection on violence, identity, conviction, these very heavy themes, human nature. Uh, and we're using John Brown to explore it. So it's very ambitious, just like the book we are discussing is very ambitious. So, like I said, a lot of the events we discussed here, you can just find them on Wikipedia. There's a, some great books out there about John Brown. One specifically is The Legend of John Brown by Richard O. Boyer, and also Oswald Garrison Villard. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He was the great-grandson of William Lloyd Garrison. He actually sort of appears in this book. He also wrote a pretty good book about John Brown. So if you want to dial in more into the factual elements of his life, rather than maybe some of the psychological ones or political economic ones, which we are also discussing in this episode, go read those books. So, anyways, without further ado, please enjoy our episode about Russell Banks Cloud Splitter, John Brown, his son Owen Brown, and give a warm welcome to our guest, John Lingen, who has a book out about Credence Clearwater. If you're anything like me, you really like CCR, please go check out his book. So, anyways, thank you all for listening this week. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome 
to the Trillbillies this week, April 27th. That's the day we're recording anyways. Uh, we have a very special guest for you all. We're joined by writer John Lingen. John, I, am I to understand you got to you got to meet Pretty Purdy recently, right? Oh, it, it, yeah. Uh, it was not recently, but um, in my in my illustrious freelance music writing career. Yeah. Um, I once, I, I think this was in like 2016. He released, like, self-published a memoir, like an autobiography, that is very strange to read because it's entirely written from another person's voice. So it's billed as <laughs> an autobiography, but it's written entirely in the third person. And then Pretty Purdy did this, and then Pretty Purdy did that, and here's what... <laughs> like the miseducation of... Uh, what was it, John Adams? What was his son, his grandson? Yeah, the education of uh, yeah. Henry Adams. Yeah, Henry exactly. Adams. Yeah, that was written yeah. in the third person. Yeah, there was. Yeah, this is an, a, a very similar, uh, you know, uh, story <laughs> of proximity to American regal power, of course. Um, <laughs> so that was basically an excuse because he lives in like I think Jersey, and he grew yeah. up in Maryland, which is where I'm from. So he was like you know, pretty reachable, as you might imagine, you know, and so, yeah, I just sort of, like, used that as a as a peg to kind of hang out with him for a couple of days at a couple different shows. Bernard Purdy was, or I mean, he's still alive, but, like, I had some of his LPs, man, and, uh, and the, that's, you, you want to talk about, like, someone who's in the pocket. He's like, in you talk pocket. about drummers who are in the pocket? Never left it. Never, Never left, left it. <laughs> you <laughs> teased him, John. He, he probably thought he was getting the call up to be in the John Lincoln bluegrass experience on the skins. <laughs> when he, passed, I tell you what, he would have played on it because one of his, um, one of he, I mean, he's he's famous for having like this just simply outrageous list of credits as a as a solo like sort of. Um, studio drummer something like four thousand records or whatever and even with that he still insists on claiming that he played drums on an untold number of other art like uncredited including the beatles he claims that he was <laughs> now like i want to make it clear like he's very funny and it's like he's a very funny character but like this man like is a genuine musical hero in our country. It's like one of the greatest to ever do it behind the drums. But he, his, like the way that he broke into the music industry was that he was, um, what was then known as a, like a, what was it called? Like a shiner or something like that. I'll, I'll remember the term in a minute. Um, but basically, he would sit in a recording studio behind the drum kit and they would bring in new recordings from like, you know, sing a sweetener is what he was. So they yeah. would bring in recordings and they would say like this band recorded this song drum tracks a little, mm. you know, could use a little, you could use a little more pop. And so he yeah. would play along with it and they would use his track or sort of use it to put a little oomph behind the way. And so he claims, <laughs> even though his like actual credit list is staggering, yeah, he claims that he played on 21 Beatles sides, like early days, but still, uh, and that, you know, to say nothing of many other things. So like, um, 
<laughs> I could believe it if you consider their personnel behind the, you know. They, they is, hate is that an anti-Ringo comment coming from me, Tom? <laughs> Not on my watch. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> Pavement brought him in when, like, Gary Young, their first drummer, was bad. They had to bring Pretty Party in, and they were like, they were like, actually, can you play not in the pocket? Like, our thing is, like, sloppy, not in the pocket. Can you do that? And he was like, yeah, I got you. Yeah, so, whatever yeah, you need, well, man. <laughs> I would love to find out that Bernard Purdy, Pretty Purdy, played the drums on, um, uh, what was the Jimmy Buffett, Alan Jackson song? <laughs> Five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> Could've I been. think the only I mean, thing I he was didn't he play on isn't he the brains behind uh Asia Steely Dan? He played Steely on Dan's some of Asia. The, I think he played on uh Home Home at Last and um oh god he played on uh on Deacon Blues as well. Okay, but Asia yeah. the song was performed by Steve Gadd. He's the guy who did the uh oh, okay. Yeah, so um yeah, this is what happens. Like, yeah, yeah. T- Terrence just jumped right in there with the drum stuff, but we can, you know, we can I, hang. It's like I, well, once I didn't know that I had like was one degree removed from this guy who was basically an idol of mine in my twenties. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, this is like because like you could put his albums on and just drum, and you know what I mean? Like that's kind of what they're amazing. Some, some of them, I mean, like his solo stuff. Like he would have albums of just like dr- just drumming. <laughs> it was the shit. <laughs> Soul uh, drums, man. Yeah, it was yeah. great. Yeah, this is where Terrence takes his nickname, Terrence Pretty Ray, from too. <laughs> in case you were wondering. Yeah. Well, you got to uh, earn it, and he uh, he definitely did. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, I'm. You know, I'm sorry for leading us down that path. That's uh, never because, because never. we're yeah we we're here to talk about something that's entirely different. <laughs> There's not even Let's a try segue to segue. There's not even a se- I can't I was searching throughout the entire one as like the, the okay, here's the closest I can find. Here's the closest segue I can find. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh Pretty Party claims to have played on thousands of albums in addition to the you know plethora, copious amount of albums he ar- actually already has played on, like accomplishments, and claims to have played on another on a number of other albums. So in some ways he is a ghost drummer. He is there and not there. He is yes. he his uh his his person represents a uh a, <laughs> an archetypal hero that transcends uh time and space. And yeah, uh, he he's cultivated his own mythology as yes, well. I think that's yes. that's an important component here. That's right. Um there we go. That's enough of a segue. It's like you know, segues they can be kind of tenuous, they don't need to be entirely strong (laughs) (laughs) um but today we are talking about well we're talking about john brown ostensibly that's that's the figure and subject of the book that we read that we wanted to talk about but i am going to argue that this book is not about john brown at all john brown is one character (laughs) in this book but okay. I don't think that John Brown is the centerpiece of this book. I think this book is mostly about the Irish slave myth. 
that's what, that's what I took away from that. <laughs> Russell Banks is really concerned about the treatment of the Irish. <laughs> Very subtle thematic <laughs> signaling happening here. There yeah. was. Um, yeah, t- so Tom gave it away. The, books were, the book we're talking about is Cloud Splitter by Russell Banks. Someone gave me this book a long time ago, and then I saw that Russell Banks had passed in January, and I was like, where do I know that name from? Oh, it's on my bookshelf, buried underneath, you know, hundreds of other books I've never read. So he's like, yeah, I'll read this. Why not? Um, and and that started me down a path of reading a bunch of other Russell Banks books. So um, I read uh, I read several of his other books to prepare for this. I read Affliction. I read Continental Drift, The Darling, uh, The Sweet Hereafter. Um, two of his books have been made into movies. One by Paul Schrader. Uh, affliction. <laughs> there, there, the king. There's Paul, the, yeah, there's a Paul Schrader thing here. And in some ways, a lot of the themes that Russell Banks works with are very much themes. That, Schrader-esque. They're Schrader-esque. <laughs> I mean, so much so, there's a character in First Reform who, you know, spoiler alert, kills himself because he's so absolutely... Uh, ridden with like guilt and anger and rage over environmental devastation. Uh, and and so like we have to look at a character like that. Obviously, that's a Paul Schrader film. But you look at a character that like that and you say, is that person sane? Are they insane? Are they crazy? You're not crazy. I think that's kind of the question we're trying to answer with this book and that Russell Banks was trying to answer with this book. Was the Brown family insane? Were they crazy ass <laughs> white boys, or were they perfectly sane? <laughs> they got in on the ground floor of the CWB movement. <laughs> they I have to say, they truly did. Yeah, um, they named a wing wing of the headquarters after him, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. Um, you know that show with Henry Louis Gates? It's uh, like the yeah. genealogy show. You know that white rapper Tom McDonald that pops up every once in a while? It's kind of like the, the right wing hero. We're uh-huh. going to see him on uh, that show, Henry Louis Gates, and we're going to find <laughs> out that he was descended from from the right from the loins of JB. He's going to be like, no, <laughs> no. It would t- render him, it would completely tear his identity apart. <laughs> I mean, Brown did have you know quite a few kids uh 23 and, and some yeah some of them even survived and uh, <laughs> you got to figure that his line does uh extend to the present day you know i'd be fascinated to learn how the contemporary inheritors of the john brown legacy <laughs> feel about that right now because you know i think that to i mean first of all i totally on board with what you're trying to say. I think the insanity thing is definitely one. I think it's also like the question that the narrator, his son, Owen is trying to answer about himself. That's kind of like one of the signal dramas in his own narration is like, am I insane? Right. Would I be, would I be more or less sane for turning away from my father and like rejecting this? Um, But yeah, to me, I do think that there's that additional question there about like where morals come from in a way that like seems very Schradery to me. You know, yeah. I do I haven't 
I haven't seen the Affliction movie and I haven't read it. I haven't read the book. I, I read uh, Sweet Hereafter mm-hmm. in preparation for this, which was, uh, you know, just to give the new the newbies in the audience, we're talking here about, you know, Affliction is about uh, generational abuse and trauma yeah. and was adapted by Paul Schrader. Uh, the Sweet Hereafter concerns a small town that experiences the death of 14 children at once when a school bus plunges into an a frozen... Thing a frozen lake uh-huh. and that, I'm, that that is not a spoiler that is literally the concept from which so we're talking um these are heavy duty books and about heavy duty things and i do think that like uh morality is one of them it's like you know how do you even there's a lot of class in these books you know like what is morality when you're concerned about putting food on the table what is yeah. morality when you're um when you're confronted with like true injustice and all the, like when, you know, just like how do people sort of create a sense of morality? Um, yeah. And that's, that's, uh, I, I, it's not often that I come away from a book, like really thinking those types of thoughts. I don't like read fiction for those kinds of things, like right. to ask the big questions or whatever, <laughs> but this was like, uh, just like really good and i remember really individual just sort of like visceral scenes about it and then you later on find yourself having these bigger conversations in your head which i thought was very impressive um how did you find his other books because like i said i'm halfway or not quite halfway into continental drift now which will be my third book i have not found the other two to be as engrossing as cloud splitter but I'm just curious what you're you're deeper in than I am. So, so yeah. So let me say this. And, and Tom and I mentioned this on a few episodes past. Like Russell Banks is in the in New York Times obituary for him. They said a writer steeped in the working class. He is definitely steeped in the working class for two reasons. He writes about like outcasts and he writes about class in America. Like a lot of his books are about how class is lived and experienced in America. And that includes race. But another part of that is that he just grew up in poverty. He grew up to a single mother. Like his dad ran out on on him when he was like 12 and he was the oldest. And you know what I mean? Like he, he grew up in poverty. He was a great student though. and, And was apparently able to get a scholarship to a good college in the 60s, he ran around with like SNCC, you know, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and like the Civil Rights Movement. And, uh, and, you know, let me, so a lot of his books deal with race. A lot of his books deal with identity. Like that's a big, a big um, theme that he keeps coming back to. Like, yes, where do morals come from and where do I, where does identity come from? How is it formed? How do we, you know, how do we realize who we really are? And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I was reading his books at the same time that I was rewatching Twin Peaks. And I was like, oh, these these things could not be further apart. Like they are so wildly different from each other, but they're really not. I mean, aesthetically, yes. Like David Lynch is working with surrealism. Russell Banks is working with pretty much realism. I guess you could call it that, although there is like magical realism elements in a lot of his stuff. But like the themes, they're all I mean, it lines up. It's like identity, 
like a lot of characters will look in mirrors and find themselves disembodied, like parts of their bodies will become disembodied from themselves, like extreme alienation and loneliness, a conviction. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like where, where do these com things come from? And so it's like there's a lot of similarity there. Community as well. Com exactly. Rural community. Yeah, that's exactly right. So let me say that, like, of the ones I read, I really liked Sweet Hereafter just because of how brief it is and how, uh, you know, punchy it is. It just gets its point across. Affliction, I had a hard time with at first, but like once it fucking gets rolling in the book, the movies, the, the movies, the exact same way it unfolds like a Paul Schrader movie. It's like by the end of it, you're right. like, holy fuck, man. Like, you know, it's it's. uh but when I read Affliction, Affliction is kind of like the keystone for understanding Cloud Splitter in this weird way. They deal with right. some of those same themes, even though the characters are like inverted or weird deformed versions of each other. So it's like in Affliction, you've got a guy and his father and they have this, like you said, this long abusive relationship. The father is an alcoholic. Uh, and they have this very complicated interwoven relationship that they can't break apart from each other. In Cloud Splitter, it's the exact same, except John Brown is not an alcoholic or he's and he's not abusive, but he is kind of manipulative. Well, that's an interesting thing that you guys said there. Right? I think we yeah, put a peg in that one for later in the conversation for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting question, right? Because it's like you ask yourself, like, who was this guy? He did one of the seminal acts of uh, violent direct action uh, in American history. Uh, argu arguably, none of the events of the 19th century would have happened without him. You definitely not a civil war, probably. Uh, and so, I mean, maybe maybe so. Maybe there would have come along another John Brown. Who Who's to say? But uh, but yeah, we haven't. I, while while we're laying out themes here too, uh, the way you're describing affliction, and we're describing like, you know, we have one one father who is uh, fundamentally and very literally physically abusive. John Brown, like, I think certainly by like our contemporary standards, is abusive. But you, we can we can argue the finer points of it. Right. What we're talking about in both cases, though, is violence. They're both violent men. And I, I think all of yes. these books are violent in a way, which yeah. I think is another like Schrader thing about it is, is it's not like they're not, you know, violence in the like a building exploding and somebody shooting a machine gun way. But they're violence in the like, you know, the the Paul Schrader, like one person killing themselves or, you know, one horrible tragedy or one man drinking himself to death or stabbing another person. It's all like super intimately felt uh, yeah. or concerning or worried about at all and, times and yeah. all and all of the contradictions all of the social contradictions and pressures and anxieties and 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 alienations becoming embodied in a single person who can no longer contain them and they it starts exploding out you know what i mean like travis bickle and tra tra taxi driver or you know what i mean like it definitely starts, it's our, or like an affliction too, like Wade Whitehouse. It starts or, or anybody that's ever played the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these books are all about men who are uh, just about to be embrace their their inner clown prince or whatever the fuck. <laughs> this is the story of my older brother's strange criminal behavior and disappearance. We who loved him no longer speak of Wade. 
it's as if he never existed. By telling his story like this, by breaking the silence about him, I tell my own story as well. Everything of importance, that is, everything that gives rise to the telling of this story occurred during a single deer hunting season in a small town in upstate New Hampshire where Wade was raised, and so was I. I came into this, and of course, John Brown's one of those guys who's just like, particularly if you, you know, you traffic in the left, and he, who's like sort of legacy looms large. And I came into this just kind of like my conception of him was as this guy with this like great moral courage and all this kind of stuff. And I left thinking like, or is he just kind of the inverse of like a January 6th guy? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, he just so happened to be right, but he's just as insane. <laughs> that is so funny you say that because I sort of feel like John Brown and. You know, and, and does it and does it matter? You know, and I guess does it matter? <laughs> I think from a class perspective, that is correct, because who was John Brown? He wasn't a wage earner. He was a he was a well, he was a shepherd at first and like a tanner, but he start in the 1830s, which was kind of like the 1980s of the 1800s. Like you had everybody trying to do get rich, <laughs> like everybody trying to do like get rich quick schemes and everybody thought like you could just make money everywhere. It's like <laughs> he had all these schemes to like get rich quick, like sell you know, sell deer, make like a lot of money out of it. A it's few of them are in Cloud Splitter. I mean, it's yeah. definitely implied in the narrative of that book that he, let's say, is more keen to embrace the like uh, big violent action the worse his life becomes financially, you yeah. know, it's sort of, you know, like they definitely, yeah. and like that's made clear. Like he, he has that episode where he goes to uh, England, which is just like, this is what I love about like an 800 page book is there's like a hundred page section or maybe even oh, less. Yeah. Con the people concerning... on Amazon, by the way, the Amazon reviewers hated this. They were oh, like, complain I, I, read okay, a, yeah, I read a book. I wanted to read a book about John Brown. It's like you missed the point. <laughs> Dude, I wrote I wrote a 200 page book and people complained about a three page <laughs> scene because it, it was. <laughs> that's what they love to do, man. It's yeah. what they love to do. But anyway... I wanted to be treat about CCR. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> so like uh, he. Um, but yeah, so he, they go. They there's a scene where they travel by boat. Owen and his father alone travel by boat to England, to London, where they are going primarily to sell. Is it like uh, it, it's uh, like sheep kind it's of uh, fabric? It's wool. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. That, there's a there's a that's to show how uh, rural I am. I couldn't pull that one. So, <laughs> yeah, so they're selling, you know, bales and bales of of wool. That's the primary reason they're going. And his like, you know, the the type of sort of Yemen farmer with a billion kids that he is, he's always sort of thinking up the next kind of like, all right, big score, and then we'll be okay for a little while. He's never going to have like a steady job. So they go over there to sell this big thing, and he's like, it's great. I'm going to I'll come back with a bunch of money. And instead, they do a little cool sightseeing and they like visit some things and they interact with some incredible characters that you never see elsewhere in the book. But then like one of his bales is like moldy. And yeah. so the English guys kind of like take him for a ride. And no, like, I don't want this. 
Yeah, they're like, look how rough this stuff is. We'll give you it for like an eighth of the price. And he has no choice but right. to like, because he literally can't get back on the boat to return home unless he gets some money. So it's like, and then after that, he's like, I think what we need <laughs> is a great man to lead us to a violent conclusion. Uh, you know, a, a violent uh, you know, sort of meeting with destiny. And it's like, yeah, it's it, the sun never comes out and says like that so directly, but it's very heavily implied just yeah. in the narrative that it's like it's the equivalent of a dude who had to close his, you know, fucking Odile's Odul's tap room because yep. of the recession. Uh, <laughs> or, yeah. or uh yeah, or you know, his print shop because of COVID, and then was like so I guess we're doing this this January sixth thing. Like it's time to keep the call, <laughs> yeah. you know. Like Dude, that is so funny that you guys say that because that is literally what I was thinking too. Like as the yeoman farmer, he is the he is America's early version of the self made entrepreneur, or small businessman. Which means that in American society, in American class society, we have a very weird class structure, right? Like we have millionaires and billionaires. And then the proletariat and then like the middle professional class, like teachers and doctors and lawyers. But then we have this weird and they're in capitalist. Uh, obviously, they're in capitalist economies all across the world. But in America, America was founded with this foundational myth of the human small businessman, you know, class. And in that class, in the very person, the, the ultimate individual, the uh you know, the ultimate individual who can seize the free real estate of, of a North America and all of its many resources and turn it into profit on the backs of that person are incredible contradictions and pressures. Because why? Because it very rarely works out for any of them. Like the, a lot of them are at a moment's notice. Just a few paychecks away. They don't even pay. They're paying their own fucking money because they're basically self-employed. From complete ruin. That's why a lot of the guys at January 6th were these types of guys. They weren't yeah. like they were small business owners, but they were kind of like poor and broke small business. They were failed small business owners. That's the thing. I, Dude, that, the thing that blew my mind, you know, not to trump this so early in the game or at all. But like when I first learned at early into his like reign or run or whatever it was like some type of like post 2016 analysis it was like the average trump voters income is 72 grand a year and i was like i don't think i was earning like much more than that at the time <laughs> and i was like and i was like man i you know, like i live in an expensive place like like if i lived in a cheaper like 72 grand is not poor this, these were right. not the hillbillies, you know what I mean? Right. These were, like you say, it's people who own a car dealership, but, you know, China's not producing enough chips or whatever shit. Right. And like, it's just like that kind of, you know, it, you know, living in prefab houses like that is the type of person. And he is like the person one rung below that. He's like trying to get to that. But that's still his sort of ideal. Brown is, I mean, like he's this yeah. person who I, I agree. He is striving, like you said, to be part of this like new Yankee business owner, like middle class business owner. And um, yeah, cannot pull it off for reasons having to do with his own focuses being elsewhere. Um, 
like, yeah, I do think that there's like comparisons to be made, but like he did feel the slavery, the freedom cause. And this is also laid out in the book, like very deeply from an early point on. Here's what I thought was like. Uh, to me, like, so I thought he I, in my mind going into this. Like, I thought that what I knew about John Brown was basically from, like, Jacob Lawrence's paintings of him. Like, you know, this, like, guy that just had this, like, unshakable, like, yeah, you know, uh, aversion to injustice or whatever. And really, he's got more in common with, like, these guys that are, like, TV preachers that say they talk to God and stuff. Like, and I know, I know, like, Banks is obviously taking liberties, but he believed he had, like, this mandate from God to strike these people down. We believe no, he, was, that, uh, he was a holy warrior. For sure. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Let me, which let me I just, didn't get going into this. Let yeah. me just say that. So banks did take liberties, but honestly, when it comes to John Brown and his character, he didn't take that many liberties. He did take liberties with Owen Brown and with some of the circumstances around their farm homestead in North Elba, New York. But like everything I've read about John Brown, he sounds pretty accurate as to the John Brown portrayed in this book. And I just want to say that, like, when we were talking about this question of, like, insane and insane and all this other stuff, it's like, because of his position in American political economy, and you do have all these sort of contradictions sort of saddled on your back and you're told to resolve them, sometimes some people do manage to see that. And I kind of feel like John John Brown was kind of able to do that. Was he doing it consciously? Was he doing it like ahead of time instead of just like on the fly, just making it up as he went along? That's a question that I don't think any of us can really answer. But it definitely seems to me that at every point he was he was presented with a set of historical circumstances that were not that could not be untied. And in the book, Owen Brown says, you can call it God's will. I just call it history. And I think that what he's saying by that is that like bars, <laughs> which is like, yeah, it's just like you know what he's saying. Like, it's like certain human beings like Napoleon, because we are also greeted, you know, several times with the image of Napoleon because John Brown was kind of obsessed with them more so just because he wanted to know why Napoleon lost. Um, but we are kind of like greeted many, multiple times with this idea of the hero or of the person who is able to kind of reconcile some of the contradictions of history and kind of blaze a path through it. And I think that like John Brown, for whatever reason, he realized that there was no compromising with the, the slaveocracy. I mean, and his actions, which we can talk about here in a minute, like, I don't know if there was any other alternative like maybe there was, I don't know, maybe you could call them cowardly, it, but that depends on your definition of terrorism and how you feel about political terrorism. Like, is it, is yeah. it an explainable thing or is it, is it ultimately cowardice or who, who is the guy? Do you remember the guy, I guess maybe like two years ago that shot up the ice facility? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like in my mind, I was thinking about this guy because I kept going back and forth. Is it like it was Brown's conviction more along the lines of what this guy or what or was again the crazy question you know and i kept going back and forth so i don't think that guy was crazy at all i think it's just i think i think and i mean this it gets teased out well i guess we'll talk more about it on the show here but like you know it, it deals a little bit with how like brown would would um 
engage with like Harrison and, and Douglas and these like sort of nonviolent abolitionists and stuff like that. And how ultimately he believed, you know, that like, okay, it's good what you're doing, but it's just kind of fraught in the end. And that just kind of mirrors like today, like the whole like left versus lives, like can things change at the ballot box versus yeah. like what has to happen in the streets. And it's like, it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. I think that like, the thing is, is that if you think about, I mean, this is another qu thing that kind of plugs into this. If you think about any injustice for long enough in America, whether it's like police violence or the environment or whatever, you will go insane. You like you will just, <laughs> just fucking lose it. I mean, like like you think about like incarcerate mass incarceration or yeah. uh, lack of health care. If you if you dwell on it for long enough, you really will start to make. You well, America makes people crazy. That's the first of all. Yeah. I'm not when we talk about his sanity. I'm not talking about it pejoratively or like out of hand right. or anything like that. Right. I mean, like you're talking about his his rationality. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's like really, your your ability to just sort of like go along to get along, man. Like yeah. What we all have to do. The question yeah. is, is whether you're whether you're willing to die for it or not. That is a question that vexes a lot of people. And if you say yes in the affirmative, then people think you're insane. I think that's right. Kind of the. Well, I, I you know, it's um obviously to to read this now. um you know, it, it seems not unlike the sort of the quote unquote, like culture war stuff that we have going on at our present time. And that phrase is so like magazine rack insidious for like some like deeply meaningful and important like civil rights causes that are, uh, you know, multiply at a flashpoint right now. Um and like the trans ones specifically and like how those people, that community are being uh, scapegoated and treated like, you know, to read something like Cloud Splitter and to hear this character sort of opine about slavery on like truly moral terms. Like, you know, there's a he has sort of his religious basis for it, but his appeal and the sort of ultimate thing that like perhaps like makes him go crazy is the fact that it is like a a moral crusade in that way. And it is saying like it is just fundamentally wrong that an entire group of people is treated this way and victimized this way. And it must and like there is no sort of like percentage of that treatment that should be considered fine at all. And like right now, it's like you see the lengths to which these people will go to make other communities unsafe and afraid. And it makes you like, you know, that, you know, that's that's the obvious, you know, sort of equivalent, you know, equivalent that my mind drew. Yeah. And I think that it's important to keep in mind that the course, the historical context of the mid 1800s was such that by 1850 i think you know it like the question of abolitionism and slavery like by the 1840s and 1850s it had started to become apparent to uh, many people even frederick Douglass, that the only way this was going to end was in bloodshed um and you know, one of the amazing things about America is that like a lot of us can have that thought on our mind. Like we can know that like we can see we can, you know, sort of divine the tea leaves and know. And then 
at the same time, sort of backwards engineer a sort of rationalization for why you might not want to, uh, let's just say, adopt <laughs> a violent attitude or politically terroristic attitude towards changing that. It's like, let me read you this quote. Uh, Sojourner Truth came to Frederick Douglass in 1847. She said, Frederick, is God dead? Frederick answered, no. And because God is not dead, slavery can only end in blood. I mean, this is 1847. You know what I mean? Like people even knew yeah. as early as that. So my, my understanding is that the, the, you know, the sort of writing was on the wall. I mean, you had, first of all, you had the end of the slave trade right. decades before the end of slavery. So all that meant was that the ship stopped coming, but in a way that sort of mutated the plantations into more of like, uh, I don't know, kind of birth farms in a way. And it really changed the, like the nature of slavery changed in those sort of 30, 40 years before the civil war. And it become, it became, you know, worse in some ways physically for the people who were, in, who were suffering it. And it became more cruel and it also became, um, you know, they sort of, with the writing on the wall, it became a thing that it was defended more staunchly, you know, because they knew that the, it it required defending now uh, in a way that it did not. So I think, yeah, those years leading up to it, um, yeah, it's. I don't think at all that his like abolitionism was odd. It was. It was definitely the uh, the tone and the sort of his like, yeah, his like desire to sort of lead an ultimately religious crusade as opposed to a uh, political or social one you know this was part of his strategy you're you're absolutely right john like the slave trade had ended by them and so part of his strategy in harper's ferry was that what they would do was that they would start leading insurrections on the border states and drawing off slaves from the border states, thus increasing the price of a slave. So it's kind of like, you know, we, you know, for years, you know, me and Tom were working for, you know, environmental nonprofits. And you you try to increase, you try to make the industry internalize its costs and make them increase the price of coal so that it becomes unprofitable. That was kind of their strategy. They were trying to increase the price of a slave until it was so unprofitable that they would have to hire white people to do plantation labor. And at that point, white Southerners would realize that they were just in the same boat as their fellow black Americans and that they would they would achieve race consciousness, basically, that they would they would themselves they would see themselves as racialized as well. And to what degree did some of that happen? Like, I, I remember reading in uh, that Nancy Eisenberg book, uh, White Trash, where she kind of talks about like some whites that ended up in the Piedmont area, like working on plantations and stuff along blacks. And it kind of created kind of a similar cast as like, like during the Korean War, how like, uh, you know, the like Korean, Chinese and Japanese workers were all treated like differently and paid differently and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't really recall much about it, but I was curious if you if you did. Honestly, and I meant to put like caveats at the front of this episode, one of which is that like 
I'm not an expert on John Brown and I'm not an expert on slavery or the 19th century. <laughs> but I do know that we the- all recently like- dug a 25 year old novel. And I think that gives us <laughs> we have. We're well, I was just trying to get enough. Terrence on the record saying there were white slaves, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard of the Irish? You will not give me. (laughs) I do know. I don't know. I'm sure there were probably isolated pockets of that. I do know, though, that they had succeeded mostly through the Underground Railroad to increase the price of a slave. And um, and so you had this situation by the 1850s, especially after 1854, 1850, you had the Fugitive Slave Act, which. uh you know, made it illegal for any freed slave to exist in a freed state and basically deputized Americans to target black Americans. And then in 1854, you had the uh, Kansas Nebraska Act, which invalidated the Missouri Compromise and opened up Nebraska and Kansas to. I mean, you know, we say we it opened up to slavery. What it really was, was that it allowed them to vote on the question of slavery and it was it was an open question. It was the state's rights position. Yeah, it was. It was, it was the state's. Yes, it was exactly right. It was the state's rights position. They, they so were, it was an you know it was an inherently conservative quote unquote you know compromise or approach or whatever. It yes, was. Of course, this was like Stephen A. Douglas. Um, you know, Franklin Pierce was the president. Uh, you know, like in uh, Nebraska and Kansas weren't states yet; they were territories. But what they wanted to do was they wanted to set up their own legislatures. And so after the Kansas-Nebraska Act, you have all these people rushing into Kansas, like from Missouri, Kentucky, whatever, like pro-slavery forces. And then you had the Free Soilers who also went and wanted to start their own legislature. Um, You get some like back and forth, right? And it goes through it in the book. But what led to the Potawatomi Massacre, which I really wanted to talk about, which is like it's like. To me, like the raid on Harper's Ferry is like that's like blockbuster shit, right? It's like it's like heat. It's like Michael Mann. Like you really could make like a it's like instead of like, where the fuck is the van? It's like, where the fuck are the slaves? <laughs> like, yeah. like, You know what I mean? It's like it really well, it's is. also gu- it's also guns from long distance. It's like, you know, trying to get a bolt. <laughs> open and then looking up and there's like a dude in a tree a hundred yeah. yards from you who's like re- <laughs> yeah. recocking his you know musket or whatever the hell yeah and michael mann actually would do would do that a lot of justice <laughs> he goes deep that's, that's that's pretty much last of the mohicans i mean you know that's a <laughs> yeah. little bit more like real wartime but yeah no the the potawatomi is like that's knife stuff and Dude. that was a wild scene. And was... like what the, the brilliant thing was like ending that scene with the other characters going like, what the fuck? <laughs> 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 they conduct a massacre and then it's not like and then John Brown laid his thing to the ground. It was like one guy walks in and is like sees what they've done and is like, you know, I also want slavery to go away, but like Jesus, what, like what it, it's and it's and that's like the exact midpoint of the book too. So it yeah. keeps on sort of like testing the boundaries of like crazy or right, and does it matter? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's well, and I guess where I was going with that is that like if you were an abolitionist at this point, 
And you had done what John Brown and his family had done, which was side with black Americans. Like that yes. that's that's over and over. That's that's not just reified in the text, but that's reified just from people like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, that the Browns, more than any other Americans, they distrusted white people, basically. They like thought white people were too flaky and that the only people that could lead a revolution or an insurrection to end slavery were the black slaves themselves. And that is it. And so if you have that mentality and it's the 1850s and there's the Fugitive Slave Act has been passed, the Nebraska, Kansas, Nebraska Act has been passed. You've got compromisers in Washington and in Kansas, basically threatening to turn the state over to being a slave state in your mind. This is true. I think the history bears it out. There's a slaveocracy conspiracy. The slaveocracy has taken over the government they fucking you know what i mean like they've taken over and they're fucking ruling things how they want and so what brings them to potawatomi is that lawrence was an abolitionist town lawrence kansas it had been sacked by pro jay hawks yeah <laughs> which that's I'm, another I'm joking thing. i hate kansas <laughs> it's weird that's another weird thing to think about that like you've got this like quasi-revolution happening in kansas you know <laughs> right, I mean? right on the grounds of kansas university <laughs> um but like, you know, Lawrence had been sacked. Uh, the free soilers in Kansas were basically like compromising and saying like, oh, it's OK. You can sack our city. That's OK. And on top of that, the way that it's presented in the book is fucking insane. But they find out about the caning of Charles Sumner in the Senate by the coward Preston Brooks. And my favorite, my favorite american historical event of all time right my kids are so tired of me talking about the caning of Sumner. <laughs> i mean dude it's fucked up and so to their minds there is one quote that i that i think about in this book i cannot stop thinking about it it recurs over <laughs> and over in my mind but i think about the scene where john brown turns to his son owen and he says we have to become terrible. That's that is <laughs> that is that sums it up because what he's saying is he's saying these pro-slavery forces, they're a bunch of little bitches. And until they realize that we are prepared to go to extraordinary lengths and by that, he means ki killing basically innocent civilians I mean, they they were racist and they were pro-slavery, but they were just poor white people who didn't have slaves. Um, he's basically saying that they had to know that this was the kind of soul wrenching, like soul dividing act we were willing to commit. And that's an interesting question. That is an interesting question. <laughs> yeah. It's I don't know. It's interesting to think about. It's like, I mean. You know, what do you well, mean? You just you, you you I, I want to double back to, to something else that you said first, because you, you said a lot and it's and it was like good stuff, like really important things to mention. One of those things was that he had this um, this attitude of like, I'm just on the side of black people. Right. right. And that you're absolutely right that he. What what made his you know crusade capital like lowercase c just like his his sort of life's work different than other people on the anti-slavery side was that attitude i mean that attitude is is uh rare now 
you know, uh, right. in the United States, um, where they're, you know, a person, you know, a white person who feels these these issues of racial equality really deeply, um, you know, at this point, we have this language of like, you know, part of that fight for a white person is just sort of like, accepting that you're not the most important person in the room, that you're not there to lead you're and it's like, that's all new kind of information for the for our, our white community, I think, in a lot of ways. And here this guy is like basing his entire sort of ethos on it uh, back then. And yeah, part of that yeah. was adopting this just sort of base mistrust of white people because it's like he too has like been, you know, it's like the stakes, are, the stakes is high, man. Like, you know, right. you, like you can't tr you can't trust the wrong person in, you know, the wilds of northern New York trying to get these people to, to like be, this is life and death. So, um, yeah, that is like a fascinating element of of his story. And I and I think like what. I think like the farther he goes away from that, the like the worse his actions become. And that is, I think, sort of shown by the end, because right before Harper's Ferry, they have the longest conversation with a character who who has appeared a few other times, uh, which is Frederick Douglass. Right. So like Frederick Douglass, there are a couple like beyond Brown, like naturally, there are a few sort of like historical figures that have walk ons. And, and Douglass is one of them. This this meeting happened in a quarry too, so it, it's interesting to think about. Like this was a real event. <clears throat> amazing, amazing, because that would have been very different had Banks uh, invented it. I think right. it would have worked fine, but it would have been different. But but at any rate, they meet, and he basically says, "Like we're marching to Harper's Ferry. We need you behind us." because we need to summon an army. It's like a Lord of the Rings moment. Right. But like, what if, what if Strider was just like, a, I'm hearing the voice of God and everyone else just sort of went like, gonna have to let you handle this because that's what <laughs> Douglas does. D Douglas says like, yeah, this is certain death. He says it's a steel There's trap. No yeah, it's a steel trap. He knew the place geographically. He was like, there's no way you're going to get out of there. That place is just filled with, because it was a fort. You know, it was filled with weapons. So you're going to try and march on a fort and take slaves from there while also fighting. So, And so he doesn't get the manpower that he wants. And so the point being, like, his sort of messi messianism is like, yeah, it's that it's that um, that fight between his messianism and his like that moral element to it. That sort of that earthier kind of just like fellow man element to it. What were you going to say, Tom? I was well, I, I don't really have a fully fleshed out thought, but I think like when John's talking about this, you know, this sort of tug between his messianism and and the fellow man thing, I think. Actually, I'm going to sit on that file. Let me think about that for a, little, for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right. It's. I think the thing is, and we have to keep this in mind. I read an interview with Russell Banks. I cheated a little bit. And I read an interview with him because he was talking about that scene early on in the book where Owen Brown steals the watch, his grandfather's watch, and John Brown beats him. 
you know, spanks him or whips him or whatever, and then turns around and tells him to beat him, like to give him 60 <laughs> lashes. And and Russell Banks said that the reason he did that was he was trying to establish that there is such a like thing. That, that really happened or he'd made that up? He made that up. That was, oh, okay. yeah, that was not a, or as, as far as he could tell. Like, Damn. Right. <laughs> it go deep. Yeah. It's like, no, it's like, uh, he was trying to establish that there is such a thing. And again, you have to keep in mind that Russell Banks' books, every single one of them I've read has violence in it. And it's not gratuitous violence. It's not like Tarantino esque violence. It is violence that has been pondered on very deeply and that probably comes from a place of having experienced it as well. And so, like, I think that he understood. This is someone speaking from the perspective of someone who has been on the receiving end of some violence, whether from police, parents, friends, neighborhood bullies, whatever. Um, and he he said that he was trying to establish that there is such a thing as principled violence. And so he was trying to establish this line of continuity between him making his son beat him in the in the barn to Potawatomi. And it's not for him to decide uh, or, you know, John Brown or Owen Brown or whatever to decide if this was right or wrong. It's basically up to us as the reader. You know what I'm saying? To like to try to understand what this says about human nature It's like if there is such a thing as principled violence, violence in service to something greater than ourselves. Uh, I don't know. What does that say about us? I, I think that that's you're right. Like he's asking these big questions, but the weird thing about Russell Banks is that like his books are very unpretentious. It's like they're very accessible. It's not like you're reading Pynchon or anything. Like this is, it's like you can sit down, you can read it all on a weekend, really. It's like, but it's well, asking these huge questions about like, yeah, human nature and such. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting that like this is a historical novel, you know, which is uh, unique. I think in his books, definitely up to like that time, like in taking like that degree of sort of, um, I don't think he'd ever said a book in the 1800s before. And so, you know, whenever a writer does that, it's interesting to see their decisions about like how they're going to uh, sort of make that uh, familiar sort of world build a little bit. And there's very little of that, like in this book, it's not like, it's not like written in a sort of florid mock 19th century. Like right. It doesn't have like a like a special kind of uh, because he's actually like in the in the narrative of this in the world of this book, he's actually writing it. The character is writing it as an old man in yeah. the 20th century. Yeah. So he is. And this is a his, this is a fictional liberty that I know that he took because Owen Brown died. That much younger than this i was gonna and say so i was gonna say that you can and this kind of is my interpretation of the book because it fits along with some of his other stuff i think you can make a very good argument that who is te telling this story is actually mm -hmm. not real that they're spectral that this is not like this is basically a ghost because the real owen brown did okay. die in 1889 this book is yes. told from the vantage point of 1909 but in the very opening, it has a scene where Owen Brown returns to his childhood home in the year 1889 to watch a burial. And he's not sure who's being buried. So it's, it's you know what I'm saying? Like, so it was his own burial, man. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, Damn. I love it. No. Well, so and, and that's I love it. That, that that, though, is a recurring 
uh, Russell Banks theme. Both that's the, hard. The idea of return, <laughs> like seeking out, like return to home and everything. But two, the idea of storytelling as an act of, uh, how do you put it? Like incorporeal, incorporate, uh, like making or real. Yeah, making or yeah. making real or manifest a uh, an event or a person, like consolidating an idea or or a, an identity into a single entity. Like you see this over and over throughout his work. Like he even says it in the beginning of affliction. Of affliction. Like this is not Wade's story to tell. This is my story to tell. And these are facts, but facts don't make history. Like the the and and in continental drift too, he says that at the beginning. He says you could have a recollection, but a recollection would not be sufficient. Like we have to retell the story, and in retelling it, we relive it. That's the power of stories, and that's the power of you know that's what gives us identity and convictions and morals and these other things. These questions that we were asking earlier. So I I think that that's. This is kind of what I was saying earlier. Like, there's a way to read this as like, oh, this is a fun story of John Brown. But in my reading, this story is about Owen Brown. This story is about how Owen Brown kind of halved himself. He split himself in half and he became the almost sort of shadow self of his father who basically pushed his father to violence. It's sort of an inverse of the affliction thing. It's like he pushed his own father to because like that happens multiple times in this. That happens at Potawatomi. Yeah. That happens at like Wakarusa. His like John Brown is like action, action, action. But when it comes down to it, he can't actually do it. And no one is like, no, father, let's go fucking hack these guys to death. <laughs> <laughs> like that's I, I, and so that's what I mean. And again, coming back to this, like some of the similarities with Twin Peaks. You have a shadow self like the you have a hero and you have a hero's shadow self, the parts of him he cannot reconcile. There are just contradictions. And but they push him towards these heinous acts that maybe they're good, though, in the end. Maybe they serve a larger purpose. But in so doing, did he lose a part of himself? Did he lose a part of his own identity? Like these are these are questions that like he wrestles with across multiple books of his. It makes a ton of sense. I, I in fact, it, it, so I have this uh, copy of Continental Drift and it has this little like about Russell Banks thing in the back of it. And he actually talks about this as well, because um, a number of his books are either set in or feature characters from uh, Jamaica and like yeah. the Caribbean he, broadly. Yeah. yeah. And so like he has spent a fair amount of time there as well. And so he is talking here about, um, well, the, the thing just says, in order to capture a narrative voice capable of encompassing the disparate worlds of blue-collar New England and Caribbean voodoo, Banks invokes the Haitian Loa, or Mouth Man, the spirit of the dead that speaks through the mouth of the living to help tell the story. Yeah. I'm really inter I'm really interested in reinventing the narrator. This is him talking. It's a convention that went out the window in the 20th century. I want to feel I have my arm around a shoulder of this reader and I'm explaining, narrating, telling a wonderful story to this person that I've stopped, like the wedding guest in Coleridge's Ancient Mariner. I'm like the ancient mariner stopping the wedding guest in his rush to tell this wonder to him, and I want to have that sense of intimacy, a face-to-face, arm-around-the-shoulder contact. And I thought about that, like, in the context of Cloud Splitter, because, like, yeah, it's, like, so this was published in 1998, and, like, 
I couldn't tell you how many like single voiced historical novels that are 800 pages were like being like, it's much more common now uh-huh. to like, to write a historical story, like from a bunch of different perspectives, you know, to like, that's, you know, like we've come out of the sixties and seventies and like, like underworld came, we came out around this time and right. like took that sort of approach. Yeah. Don DeLillo. Yeah, exactly. So like, this is a book that's very long and like, not at all. I mean, it's like a page turner once you get like cooking with it, but I definitely could see people getting bored. Uh, but like it's all one voice like you say and there's all these questions about like who it could be it's much more like a 19th century book and so it but again it's like written theoretically in the 20th century it's composed the text of it is composed in the 20th century so you have this element of like a 20th century mind looking back So he does have this element of like knowing it's all kind of like a vanished world to a degree. Like he knows that like when he's talking about his family's poverty in the 1840s and like living in a cabin and like falling off a roof, breaking his arm and like his father just reset it. And he's had a weird arm since then for his whole life. And that's just what healthcare was back then, you know, and like (laughs) kids dying. The, the burning scene with the like with the sister like like oh, the some baby of the violence scalding like the baby the baby yeah. scalding scene like yeah. it's like that's what I mean it's like there is there is violence in this book that has nothing to do with morality you know that's yeah. like you know that that violence it's just like the world it's was the violence very done to poor people yeah 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 and, yeah, and does, it's a and tough always- life man. Doesn't Owen say that toward at the end, like I am now the modern man or something like that? He, he makes. I a, think or, he does. Yeah, I mean, like you know what I mean, like through his uh, experience at Harper's Ferry, watching this all go down from a distance. I think that's what he says. Like I am a modern man now. <clears throat> and so he, you think about it, it's like he played this enormous role in history as a part of this gang eventually. But that's literally the last 50 pages of the book and the rest of it is an, an, just an incredibly psychological. There's no like politics. There's no scenes like everyone was up on the, the you know, the boom, the bones man's rag or whatever. Like there's no sort of like made up historical sort of like jibber jabber in this yeah. book. You know what I mean? And like it's all just sort of like him remembering feelings and drama at these different points and you know it's all about the sort of yeah the development of the psyche and i think you're absolutely right too that like he's so caught up in like is my is my dad turning me crazy am i right to stay with him that he doesn't stop to consider like am i driving my dad crazy yeah like, like yeah. just like as like if a guy is drawn to like messianism like that does it help him or hurt him to have like someone so indulgent you know what i mean like would john brown have found himself compelled to such sort of like heights of of leadership and uh if he didn't have this sort of like bizarre fawning tortured relationship with this one son mm-hmm. who uniquely among his all their sons stays home 
all the others go and do something else and they come back and they participate but like they have families and do other stuff and like there's this one son who hangs around like what would have happened to john brown if the fourth son left you know i do think that's a great question um and something that's interesting is that john brown his mother died when he was eight and uh-huh. he he apparently spoke a lot about this um like when he was interviewed especially after harper's ferry like when he was waiting to be executed he spoke a lot about his mother dying when he was eight and how you know important and psychologically damaging this was to him well owen brown his mother john brown's first wife i think her name was diane she died when owen was eight and so you okay. and that's it, again this is kind of what i'm saying you can make the argument that you have two beings who are kind of opposite from each other in these very interesting ways, but whose impulses and desires, like their lusts and their sins and their and their desires and, and uh, their desire for blood and for changing and altering history, feed off of each other in these very important and powerful ways that at just the right moment in history, kind of lightning strikes and they they make these split decisions that change the course of history forever. And so it's like you have, like I said, you have these l- characters who are father and son whose lives are kind of parallel in a weird way because John Brown's fa- parents were abolitionists, just like John Brown was, which means that Owen Brown's parents were abolitionists, just like Owen Brown was. John and Owen experienced these very similar childhood experiences. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like they have... I don't know. I'm not saying that this was his exact. Uh, I'm not saying that this is Russell Banks's exact argument when he was writing the book. I'm just saying it seems a lot like a lot of the other themes he has in a lot of his other books. This like very taut, like this very fraught relationship between father and son. Um, I mean, I would say it, it. It sounds like that he, as an artist, Banks as an artist, encounters that story somehow, or it gets his and and he maybe because he lived up there. And the thing about it that appeals to him as an artist is that like, yeah, he sees this like he like I'm sure it was like once he saw. Oh, one son sort of stayed with him the whole time. Like, what's what's that all about? Though, like, that's when the novelist brain kind of clicks on, I bet. And and so that's where the story comes from. And that's what sort of yeah, what makes it so fascinating is it's because it's like we all sort of know what he did it's more fun to sort of speculate on what what kind of person does that yeah you know what i mean you know because yeah it's like what are the what are the specific consequences and you were saying like that about the um you know and then you know these two have this sort of parasitical relationship and then at the wrong period of time the pilot light comes on and then it's like the FBI is at their door and raiding their laptops and looking at their message boards. You know, it's like, it's like, it's, it's a tale as old as time. Well, you, know, that's yeah. what, you know, that's what's kind of fascinating about it. Uh, and he doesn't go out of his way to sort of draw those uh, kind of um, parallels. I don't think at all. He just sort of lets this other world exist and, finds the common cause with it on a sort of emotional level because if you think about it we talk a lot about the 19th century and about slavery as a as a political accomplishment like the end of slavery is like you know uh 
you know, in, in terms of amendments and acts passing and that kind of stuff. But the sort of political and social world of that time had, bears no relation to ours right now. You know, like the material world of the night of 19th century America uh, is nothing like it is now. And there's such right. a limited number of like, there are important, but a limited number of lessons to take from that kind of place. And I think what was really interesting about that book was that he, it, it's entirely focused on just like, yeah, what it was like to be alive at that time. And like, what were the, what were the fights people were having? Right. What were the, you know, what, what felt urgent to certain people and what, you know, like, um, yeah, because it, it's just, it, it, we look back on it now, it's like, oh, obviously slavery was the biggest social cause of in history. But then you got this other guy trying to convince people at when it's happening to give a shit, you know, yeah. like, you know, speaking of like parallels, um, that's just how it's always been. And he finds like, that's what the book is about. It's about like the sort of nuts and bolts, like network building. And like solidarity building of that movement and just sort of what that looks like at the kitchen table. And it's pretty grim a lot of the time, um, especially at that time. What is your that when he went to Harpers Ferry, he knew what he is doing? Or he, he might not get out <laughs> when you take over government property, government property for the handful of men. You know, yeah. All of you know they may die in the morning. You know exactly what you're doing and you're not being romantic at all. It was a self-sacrifice? No. Okay. Whatever I believe in love, I have to do what I have to do to, to, to do it, to make it real. That's what a belief is all about, isn't it? He believed that men should not be bought and sold. He also believed, and he was perfectly right, that that could survive. As he himself says, the day he was hung, or the day before he was hung, I now believe, as I paraphrase, that the crimes of this guilty land will never be abolished, will never be wiped out by, by blood. I thought it could be done, he says, with a very little bloodshed. But he was wrong. He was right then and he was right now. I think he was a great American prophet. And he was one of the great, one of the really great Americans, one of the really great people from the heard of in any country. Now, what about his role as a leader of the Underground Railway? Now, was it, again, a practical thing? Was the Underground Railway practical? Yes. We so, got, we got, a lot of people, got a lot of people in Canada, you know, a lot of people. Uh, well, it's practical. We're talking about human freedom. Now, does John Brown and those are white people who acted like him to help the black to gain freedom, change in your view the collective good but all whites must bear in a way for the suffering of the blacks no the collective guilt that all whites must bear in a way is not for the suffering of the blacks it's something they brought upon themselves no but not everybody every American. white man has to pay for his history i've got to pay for mine and it's not what you've done to me which menaces you it's what you've done to you that menaces you Something that is interesting, and that I think that like the reader or anybody who studies John Brand has to account for, it's like pot. Okay, Potawatomi was pretty fucked up, right? Like they murdered three, they murdered five people, five men, like the Shermans, 
Doyles and the Wilkinsons. I think dragged them out of their house and just fucking <laughs> hacked them up. Uh, but Harper's Ferry, if you read the events at Harper's Ferry in the in the vein of kind of like what I just outlined, that like Owen and John Brown need each other, it mm-hmm. does provide an explanation for what happened at Harper's Ferry. Because or or maybe not. I don't know. Because actually, now that I'm saying it, it doesn't really make sense. Because you mean the fact that Owen completely pussies out and does absolutely nothing at, at well, the actual event? It's like literally just... sits in a tree like it's an amazing scene. It is. Yeah. An, it's it's an amazing scene. Um, And we know that that itself is probably fictionalized. Like, I don't really know. I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Owen how could? Was, sure. Yeah. Owen was told to stay. Owen was basically the getaway driver. Um. He was told to stay at the farm outside of Harper's Ferry and wait for them to come. There are two things that make no sense that John Brown did at Harper's Ferry. One, he let the train go. The the Ohio Baltimore Express makes no fucking sense why he did that. Well, it does unless I'll get to that. The second thing is he had time to get out of there. They had time to get out. And no one knows really why he didn't. I did read one book that said... One reason that they thought wise, because John Brown kept getting into interminable debates with the slave owners and generals he was holding hostage in the firehouse. So is that, that if that's true, that means my man was truly a poster. He was like going out <laughs> to, to the very end. He could not fucking stop debating. He was like, no, listen. Uh, but I think that like. Clearing you know, my good name once and for all. <laughs> <laughs> I think that what had happened was that John Brown chose martyrdom, which is itself. I knew. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's like that's what he chose. But you have to consider, though, that came at the cost of other lives, not including his sons. I think at least two of his sons died that day, including some yes. freed slaves also were were killed. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it was uh, it was very bad, very bad, folks. Um, but. The, the weird thing is, is that Owen is not there. And you're right. He watches it all unfold, basically, from a tree. And uh, it's, it's just an interesting thing to think that, like, if he had been there, if it had gone differently, if he had been in Harper's Ferry with John Brown, if it had gone differently, if they could have got out on time, who knows? Um, but essentially what happens is, yeah, John, the, what happened in real life is after Harper's Ferry, Owen Brown basically fled to Ohio or Pennsylvania. He was underground for a long time, then moved out west. He spent the rest of his life out west um, with the rest of his family, like Ruth and Jason. <clears throat> I think his mom, mm-hmm. they also married. They joined him out west. And um, they were like very socially active in like the Bay Area. They were like. I don't know. They were well known. People knew the Browns. People like went to go Dude. talk to them. And that's interesting to think. They about. were the the original, uh, you know, Berkeley crew. They're like these. <laughs> they're they're like the for, the Forrest Gump of uh, yeah. <laughs> lefty types throughout uh, they, America. They kind of were because they like they were big opponents of the Chinese Exclusionary Acts. Uh, <laughs> they were they were like temperance activists. They were supported prohibition. Uh, yeah, they just em- embodied at different times every every aspect in the lefty rainbow, you know, yeah. from 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 great to terrible. Yeah, yeah absolutely, totally. totally. 
I wish ideology was like that nowadays. Like people's beliefs are so boring. Like I, I wish there was like a temperance guy that was like, you know, shaking it up a little bit, man. Yeah. 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 I agree. No, I mean the thing. Yeah. So yeah. One, another sort of like, um, so where I grew up was in Catonsville, Maryland, which if you know that town, it's likely because of the Catonsville Nine, which are some of my favorite people to talk about because they weren't really talked about much in my town until recently. And these are uh, the group of Jesuits who in 1968 came to our draft board and broke in and burned a bunch of draft cards with napalm and some were arrested and some fled uh daniel and ted berrigan the uh the two jesuit priests were part of it and again it was like you know uh no one was hurt who's to say how much it actually did but it was just like a very sort of like uh direct action you know they did not like they had backup draft cards like that at the time it like did make some bit of difference for somebody and um so yeah when i think about that so that wasn't you know, that was a hundred years after after brown and these guys you know but you do think about like yeah there is just sort of one type of lefty now you know there isn't there isn't a lot of room like in the mainstream for the people who are saying like, yeah, why don't we burn some shit? Shit, man. The Republican versions of that person are in their mainstream for sure. Oh, yeah. You know, overrepresented. Like, well, you might say. Oh, yeah. Far too represented. You know that they are the mainstream of their party at this point. You know, it's like, you know, I just think, uh, you know, open the windows, let the ideas in, stir them up a little bit, see what they do. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know, they all, they, we're just people. I think the better, the better we understand that, uh, the more useful we can find in, or the more easily we can find inspiration, you know, cause it's like, you don't have to hang your hat on individual people, except that they're imperfect. John Brown was an imperfect, uh, person. Well, I think that like to sum to sum it up, basically like basically we need people who uh for better or worse are able to contain within themselves or observe the sort of social contradictions around us and how sometimes violence and extreme disruption may be inevitable. Doesn't mean that the three of us sitting here are gonna be the ones to do it. But it does mean that like a figure will rise that will probably do it. Like that just seems it, to it's me happening that, all the time. It's, it's happening it, all the time. Well, and, and has and has this happened. This is what like, shootings I, are. This is what gun violence, as we say, as a that's a term, gun violence, but that is a type of violence being perpetrated because we allow a certain <laughs> unjustifiable state of affairs to continue uh so it's like are we gonna get to a violent point it's like i don't know man ask the schools where those shootings happen like i i think they feel it's here uh, i think for sure if you look at violence as an outgrowth of a society or a person whether it's a person or society at large an inability to reconcile these contradictions or a, a a lack of movement, <clears throat> you know, like not budging. I, I think that if you see violence as that, whether it again at the individual or at the mass level, 
it's like yeah it's like it makes sense that we are living in a in an era where uh you're seeing more and more of that well it, and in the aftermath the question of violence pops back up again if we had hung nathan bedford forest we might not have, you know, Jefferson Davis Middle School today. Yep. You know, you know what I mean. No, you're, we, abs- you're absolutely right. I, I was also thinking of the parallels, like like when we were talking about if like if Brown hadn't chose martyrdom but kept going. I was thinking about the parallels with like Fidel Castro's life, when like him and his like ragtag band get caught at the Mankata barracks, and he just so happened to wiggle out of it while other people were sent to death, but then they regroup and then he leads the revolution and that ends up happening. Fidel Castro, another like sort of complicated guy, not for me, but I'm sure, you know, in the opinions of a a lot of people, it's like, uh, what would have happened if the crazy white boys were, (laughs) would have, would have rode again and kept riding, you know, dude, that is so fascinating (laughs) to think about because it explains why he was fascinated (laughs) with Napoleon. It makes total sense. John Brown was not a Lenin or a Fidel Castro. If he was, he would have tried to live to fight another day. But what he did was he chose, he chose, honestly, it's like he almost knew he would be choosing the martyr route. It's why he was interested in why Napoleon lost. And And also kind of lays out like, I I, had read some, when when I'd finished with the, the reading here, I'd read some review from this guy. He was a professor somewhere. And he was talking about like how he was active in the the Vietnam anti-war protests and how that like there were a lot of conscientious objectors from like, you know, for Christian faith based reasons. And then on the left, there were a lot of like, you know, Marxist Leninist things. And that's also another thing that tease out there is like martyrdom figures heavily in Christianity, not so much in Marxism, Leninism. So it's well, like it kind of matters your approach to these things. I th- and I think that's because martyrdom like terrorism is ultimately a symbolic act. Symbols right. can be very powerful. They can move history, move people to... Now, yeah, martyrdom's not necessarily bad, or yeah. Yeah, and it's certainly not cowardly. But it's not winning. And that's right. what that's what Lennon well, and Fidel also, were trying to do. The thing, too, because I definitely was, was, was thinking of him in terms of martyrdom... Uh, I, I happen to agree with you that, yes, I think he chose that path. Um, but I also think whether or not he chose it, that's the role he plays in our historical, cultural imagination. Totally. And, and you know, what's important there, too, is, like, again, I go back to this idea that he's this failed businessman, that he's this yeah. guy who just, like, can't get his foot on the ladder of like this new kind of economic America. And he's like on a certain level, like literally the guy who can't get his life together, but is also like so eaten up by climate change that you can't like disentangle those two things in his brain. So he goes and he lights himself on fire on the steps of the Supreme Court, which is what happened. I don't know anything about his personal life, but I'm just saying, like, obviously, a person has to get to a place to of inner struggle to to arrive at that thing. And I'm always really struck by those people who take that kind of quote unquote, like nonviolent approach. But at the same token, like it's an incredibly violent thing to yeah. do. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like it's, you know, it's an incredibly violent thing to do to place yourself in a public 
area and subject strangers it's the same as like you know jumping in front of a subway train or something like that is it just yeah. forces this level of of responsibility and trauma on a, a lot of bystanders to the degree where it's like comparable on a certain level like to the mass shooters you know what i mean and it's yeah. like in terms of its ultimate effect yeah 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 you know no, I, I agree and, yeah, yeah, so like Brown, I really feel like he's one of those guys, man. It's like if he like I don't know, man, what what if uh what if he just, you know, gotten that one little bit of of wool out of there and it was all clean out in England and like he came back and he could <laughs> he buy a couple cooler. mules and like new dresses for his gals yeah. and just like <laughs> yeah couple new sheep you know just like uh, take you girls to the picture show tonight <laughs> yeah what if what if things start looking up and then it's like he can just you know go go hang out at the meetings at the next town over and just sort of like listen to what they have to say and just go along with it rather than being like you know because why choose that unless you feel it's your like your last way to make a difference you know you know it's gonna be you know, if that's if, you know, you don't it's like that's a that's a very desperate, um, painful thing to to throw at people. And, um, yeah, I don't know about that as a as a form of protest, even though it's obviously, you know, less of a crime than the other, you know, than than the sort of uh, mass violence options or whatever. But um, he definitely falls on that end of the scale. You know, because at a certain point, he just like he walks into the situation knowing that it's militarily unfeasible, knowing right. that he's going into it not as strong. Yeah, I guess that's where the comparison with Castro dips off because they were way more prepared for what they were entering. <laughs> yeah. Think- no, at a certain point, I think he was consciously going against any kind of like military instinct yeah. and just going for like, we're going to meet fate. Yeah. Um, you know, like come what may, you know. Well, if you're if you're him, and we haven't even discussed this aspect of it. I mean, an hour and a half in, but it's like if you're him and you see the world around you as a literal con, content, uh, continuation of biblical times of the Bible. He was, <laughs> yes. he, was a, he was completely assured of the fate of his soul, which is really fascinating, right? As someone who uh, was so spiritual and godly was able to make these exceptions about like murder and these uh, you know maybe manipulation yeah it's interesting it's and, interesting and, and so it's i think but i think that that is kind of the thing that propels him to that you know what i'm saying because those are in conflict and what will usually wind up out of a conflict an internal conflict like that will maybe be violent and so i think that it, it is consistent and it makes sense um but yes, he was. It does seem he was completely assured of the fate of his soul, and perhaps yeah, I was going to get into, but perhaps maybe not. I was going to get to the comparisons with one Muhammad Atta, but we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, it is true that the that the um, you know the sort of uh, vin like eventually vindicated side in moral battles in American history tend to be uh less um they, like they they tend to not be the, the the people causing the war 
you know, they tend to not be the attackers. You know what I mean? It tends to be responsive. And it's like you think of the civil rights movement um, being a nonviolent movement, like in many ways, like at least at its at its inception uh, and for years into that movement. Um, you think and then you see the dogs how, and the water cannons and everything. And you're like, well, <laughs> I'm just saying it always yeah. gets tested. It always yeah. gets tested. But, um, you know, it's um, it's really interesting to see that, like, because, again, like you can see in this thing, like Brown's sort of um, Brown's pro-violent approach was never the popular one. It was never the sort of uh, mainstream one at his time. It wasn't this book is not about like a, a guy who was super popular and now like his kind just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. You right. know, it's not yeah. it's not like the Irishman or something right. like that. It's you know <laughs> he's not Hoffa. He was not a leader of men. He was born. If, like, if you think about it from like a Christian perspective, you even think about, you know, King Date, well, not then King David, Shepherd Boy King David cuts Goliath's head off, right? He doesn't just like let Goliath's body just lay there on the field and let, you know, the, the Philistines come, you know, cart him mm -hmm. off and have a proper burial. What does he do? He goes into the town carrying that giant's head, waving it around. <laughs> and you can see the kind of same effect by how a guy that grew up steeped in that says, no, 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 it's not enough just to like go in there and like, you know, suffocate these people in the middle of the night. We have to like <laughs> hack them to pieces. It. <laughs> yeah make it make a statement you know no it's it's like it's honestly it's uh he he just completely involutes the the like the 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 slave owner mentality morally and it's pretty brilliant in that way because owning people is savage it's a horrible yeah. thing and it's like it's important you know uh, like that's what i mean when i say it's important for people to like be part of that conversation or whatever and i like preaching to the choir here of course but it's like you know there has to be room for the people who really do think in moral terms first because like i think as the last couple years have shown like eventually all these issues become moral issues you know yeah. like you know ev eventually you know you're gonna have to fight for someone being exploited and someone being uh like actually actually shut out of the functioning of the country and deprived of rights at a certain point. And those are like, uh, you know, you've got to be prepared for those moments, you know, in a certain way. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It definitely seemed like on the left, um, or at least on the sort of like Marxist left, like there has been a pushback against like, I guess what you could call like moral, uh, arguments or, or sort of like humanism or humanistic sort of impulses in like people argue in favor of like a sort of materialist analysis that like we're all sort of bound to each other through these structures and everything. But if you do look at the like circumstances for like when and why Marx wrote Capital, uh, that was a moral act. That was Marx putting himself in the position of the English working class and siding with them. That's why it was such a revolutionary part of political economic analysis. In the same way that like John Brown's actions were too. They were two people who put themselves, they sided with the oppressed. And uh, I mean, Marx, you know, sitting in a British library for like 30 years and like, uh, you know, while his body fell apart, isn't as much of a 
act of martyrdom or revolutionary violence is what John Brown did. But you could argue that their actions had consequences that reverberated across centuries. And yeah, I, I'm reading Charles Portis's Masters of Atlantis right now, and there's this great quote that he has from uh, an interview he did in The Believer because Charles Portis had the same job at the Tribune in London that Marx had like a hundred years before, uh-huh. and he has this great quote because I guess he got he had to go fight in Korea or Vietnam or something like that, and they were asking him about like what it was like you know, to have the same job that this very infamous figure in history said had. And he said, well, I'll say this. The Tribune could have saved us a whole lot of grief if they just paid Marx a little better. (laughs) So here's a question. Here's a question, because we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, about John Brown, the man. To get it back to Cloud Splitter, the book, is the book inherently you know let's not say conservative versus liberal or whatever but is the book inherently or is the book fundamentally optimistic versus pessimistic is it a book about how we are a slave to fate or it is a book about how a man can make his own destiny like that's something i still i i mean i think it's pretty pessimistic but I don't know that I'm right about that. I'm up. I'm. I would. I would like to be uh, disproven of that. Almost like I. I would make the argument that a man is tied to his fate. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that like even Owen's act of at the end of separating from his father, watching Harper's Ferry, the raid fail. You know, leaving. I think that even that is an act of. Uh, fate and not really one of choice. I think that if you look at the trajectory of Owen throughout the course of the book, at every at every point he is, um, you know, makes a sort of momentous decision in his life. Uh, something that um, something that he thinks is a step in the direction of his own liberty and freedom and his own identity as a as a you know, sovereign, proprietary individual with his own identity, it immediately mm-hmm. it immediately just either because of social circumstances or because of the his own guilt over the sin involved or his own hangups about race and sex and even gender. Like, I think that it, it all brings him back to his father. So it's like it's, it is weird. Like he himself kind of has these sort of conservative impulses that yes. he can't really reconcile within himself. And that is kind of what makes him useful to his father and what makes his father useful to him in a weird way. So like their t- their fates are tied together in this very complicated way. It's so, a little yeah. Abraham and Isaac, if we can riff he, on the Bible a little bit. He even mentions <laughs> that at one point. That's one of my favorite pas- passages. He says that like, if my grandfather Owen had told the story my grandfather Owen would be God. My father would be Abraham and I would be Isaac. And that's the story that I would have to tell. My father would tell the story of Abraham, but I would have to tell the story of Isaac. And he's and like, you know what I'm saying? It's like that's yeah. and he says that's the story we would pass down. And then he says, but who would be who would be the next? Who would I be a God to? 
And that's an interesting question. Like, who would who who would Isaac be a god to? You know what I mean? That's a question we don't deal with in the Bible. That's not the. That's I'll not tell the, you what. Jesus kind of deals with it in the New Testament when he says to people, he says something interesting. Christians never talk about this, but he says to, I think Matthew, he says, "Are ye not gods?" You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's and that's like no, something nobody that deals with the scriptures engages a little bit. That Jesus kind of thought of men as making their own sort of destiny and governing and choices and whatever i'm not sure i'm persuaded by it but it's interesting that it's in there <laughs> well dude there is this question of this re these recurring patterns because you have the thing with god abraham and isaac but then you have the image of job like the the what's it called john when there's like a quote at the beginning of a book it's an like epigraph a, an epigraph the epigraph <laughs> of this book is from job and a <laughs> important part of the book is a speech a sermon that john brown gives and it's about job and afterwards owen is reflecting on it and he's saying like uh, all right is that real i don't know i could not figure that was that out. a real sermon? i was I looked, wondering about i looked that up and i could not figure out if that was real or not yeah okay. um but what owen says after that is he says you know for father for john brown he was job and god was god but for me I'm Job and my father is God. You know, so it's this weird, it's this chain, right? It's and that's that's the thing with affliction, the book too. It's this chain that gets passed down from from millennia, really. Like you have chains of God and Job, God and Job, God and Job. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. every man's father is his own God, and he is Job, and then he passes that on. And, and then he lets God. Satan come and they basically <laughs> shoot dice for your fate. Yeah. <laughs> You, bad Christ. You, I know you. <laughs> ah, yes. You. Yeah, you goddamn son of a bitch. I know you. You're my blood. You're a goddamn fucking piece of my heart. You don't know me. You don't know me. Fuck you. Fuck you. You done finally done it. Done it right. Done it like a man done it. Just the way I taught you. Oh. God damn. I love you, you mean son of a bitch. I do love. What do you know about love? Love? Hell, I made a love. Call it what you want. Everything you know comes from me. Yeah. Bang! It's yeah. a very 19th century understanding of what we now talk about as, uh, you know, trauma. And like yeah. that whole sort of range of, of uh, feelings and experiences. But... Yeah, I mean, it's all it, again, like to to say, like one, I'm, I, my father is my god, and that kind of thing, and like it's, it's such a 19th century understanding of what, like, you know, writers now talk about, like storytelling, which is really what, like, but like to talk about it in terms of who is whose god, that is such like a different level of stakes. Like, there's an understanding now that like all characters have their own 
story to tell and all all these different perspectives are kind of metaphysically valid. Um, it's another thing to talk about perspective, like from the point of view of like, yeah, the people close to you in your life are your gods on a certain level, like narratively in yeah. your life. And um, I, yeah, I just love how sort of, um, how just sort of like present that kind of thinking is in this book. It's just so, it's just like, you don't think about things on those terms very often. That, that's what sort of like, really struck me about this book was that this, you know, the, it wasn't so much like the language. It was just like in the way people were thinking and how decisions were made. That's how it's sort of like, that's how the world was built on a certain level and the woods, lots of woods. Lots of woods. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're right. In this other interview I saw with Russell Banks, he, you know, he even says that like the world that John Brown and Owen were in was a very almost pre-modern world. And that would, yes. you know, that that that's basically what you're saying, and that kind of makes that's consistent with Owen Brown saying at the end, like I'm a modern man. Like this is <laughs> this a a change occurred, right? Like a, a, a America and the world was transformed into something else at this time. It was a it was a slave society. Yeah. Like you know, that's like one aspect of it. You but know, it the was, Civil War did change everything, and like, it was. One right. thing about that is slavery did end at a it certain It was a point. slave society and it was a pre-capitalist society. And so what we get mm -hmm. after that is industrial capitalism. That that is the new world that was born and it's almost like John Brown was the kind of the one that like uh was the, you know, uh was the person that kind of like, you know, birthed it into He lit he lit the match that that yeah. burnt it all down, you know yeah. what I mean? Like uh, or started up the new thing or whatever, but you know. Yeah. Um, he or at the very least he hastened it, you know. Right, yeah, right. like you say, I think it, it was probably inevitable at some level. But uh, yeah, a big role for sure. <laughs> that's yeah. it. That's the, that's another thing when you talk about a sort of phantom aspect to him is it's like his role in history is up for debate on a certain level, like even pe to people who respect him and admire him and recognize his importance, the ultimate function of his, uh, you know, or like his legacy uh, is really up for discussion at this point. Uh, and how it always has been, you know, there hasn't ever been like, he won the battle of blank, you know, it was right. like, he did this thing that failed for a good reason that then led to a greater level of support for a cause that made the civil war more inevitable than it would have been otherwise. But it's not like, it's not like, you know, the South attacked us because of Harper's Ferry, you know, it was, you know, well, it wasn't like there were years to go. So it's like, it's a really fascinating thing that he is like a transformative figure who is also a failure which i guess is what you call a martyr i guess that's what that's what a martyr is yeah it is interesting because the south a lot of the slave owners actually tried to diminish and kind of bury harper's ferry like they didn't want to talk I'm about sure it. like this the civil war was launched because abraham lincoln won the presidency it had no, you're right Absolutely. it didn't really yeah it, like harper's ferry was a step in that direction but it was like to them, it was like once Abraham Lincoln was president, man, 
Like, we, we got to get out of here. He's going to take <laughs> it all away. Yeah. He's going to take it all away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's going to take our guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. That is an interesting point, though, about maybe I won't open it us back up for winding down. <laughs> but we kind of underrate like our failures, you know what I mean? And all this thing, you know, and, and to bring it back to terms again, Brown could understand in the Bible, you know, when Jesus is on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's not a declaration of victory. You, uh-huh. know I mean? you know what I mean? <laughs> so even when you eat shit, never underestimate the effect. of. <laughs> That's correct. Well, yeah. Final verdict, John Brown. I mean, obviously <laughs> it's like, Obviously, Let's I settle it once and for all right here, gang. Let's yeah, we're gonna, we're yeah gonna... we settle it here once and for all. I mean, like, final grade. I went into <laughs> it like thinking, you know, like this is a hero and somebody I look up to. And I still feel that way. I do feel, though, that like. If you if you are going to feel that way about a historical figure, like, you know, you learn learn a little bit about some of their complications and contradictions. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like this is a this is a. Something you you need to grapple with if you yourself want to know how to change the world. I think that that's an important thing. And um, that's why I recommend everybody should read it. That's why I wanted to talk about it with you all because I was like, I read it once. Like I said, I read it once, had one interpretation. I read it twice. I was like, damn, man, this is... You read read this book twice? Yeah, I did. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so let's just I just want to recap here for posterity. So like Russell Banks died in January and it is now April 27th and it's like just starting to get warm, especially like where where you guys are and like so that means from like January to through April Terrence has been living in a world of your banks pills. <laughs> That's all I and read. And lots of today. He has read multiple Russell Banks books in a row across decades, and the <laughs> longest one he has read twice. twice. He has he has watched Twin Peaks. He has watched the Paul Schrader adaptation <laughs> of the Russell Banks novel Affliction, mm-hmm. and. And I swear he's as smiley and uh, and laughable as he as he always is. Is this is a man? They I, should study him in a laboratory. It, I yeah. swear. Also, sprinkle in a bit, a little bit of Deadwood in there. I've been watching Deadwood. <laughs> oh that's, hell yeah! Like that's that's the you know that's the final ingredient in the mix, man. Like talk about like territories that aren't states yet, and there's like violence. I hope, I hope you're eat, I hope you're eating well. I hope you're <laughs> I hope you're nourishing your yeah, body. Taking care of yourself. <laughs> I I gotta say this was a Herculean effort for me. Uh, as it turns out, I'm pretty poorly read. So, oh, this was uh, yeah, this was uh, I feel I feel very accomplished because I think this is the this might be the longest book I've actually ever read cover to cover. I want to say, this is what I want to tell people. Russell Banks is great. He's a great writer to study because he's not pretentious in any way. And by that, I mm-hmm. I don't I don't even mean that in a pejorative way. I just what I mean is that like he shows that it's easy to tell a story. It's a lot easier than you would think it is. If you mm-hmm. just imagine yourself telling it to somebody else. Imagine Imagine another person that you're telling the story to and then sit down and write that story. Like if you imagine your audience in advance, it becomes much easier to write. 
And yeah. if you read the like the way that he writes, the way that it is kind of uh it's very unassuming, it's very it's very accessible. Um and also there's something I wanted to say too like in Continental Drift, there's like this the very last it's like the last lines of Continental Drift. Let's let, let's like, let's let's read this one. Let's let's reconvene here in a few months and yeah, you, you tackle Continental yeah, Drift. I'd like to I'd really right like now. to read that. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Um it's very different. It's very than different. Cl- than clouds, than clouds it is slipper, very different, yeah. right? It, it in fact it has as its central character almost like a hapless sort of like ne'er do well. It's like he's not like <laughs> he's not really like tormented in the same way as some of Banks's other central characters are. He's kind of just like a dumbass. He's, <laughs> he can't just, get his yeah, he's just kind of like a yeah, just like a like a, a towny lout man who just yeah. like doesn't like what's <laughs> he, going on. He's very very horny. That's like that's not in Affliction and Sweet Hereafter and Cloud Splitter. There's not a, char- a lot of characters that are extremely horny. Continental Drift is about a guy who is way too horny. Uh, I've noticed that the yeah the women in this one have uh, a notable uh, uh, per- notably pert breasts a lot of the time. Like there's a bit of that. <laughs> Yeah, like he's yeah. I mean, like that's very Schrader esque. That's what Schrader. Yeah, it's like it's they're 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 kind of like hard hard books for hard for hard readers. You know what I mean? Like in a in a good way. Like that's what you mean by like unpretentious. I think it's it's not in the way that like the current mode of like fictional realism is, where it's like almost kind of like basking in the grittiness and the poverty of it all. It's like to me, it's not like that at all. It's let me let me let me re- I just want to read this part from <laughs> so he's not Dennis Lehane or <laughs> he's not Dennis Lehane. Yeah. Uh I feel like this is kind of central to like what his whole thing is. He says, Good cheer and mournfulness over lives other than our own, even wholly invented lives, no, especially wholly invented lives, deprive the world as it is of some of the greed it needs to continue to be itself. So I mean, it's like even if they're fictional characters, even if it's Owen Brown and John Brown, who are ultimately fictional characters that we're talking about here today. It's like uh-huh. even if it, even if they're not real, like imagining their whole lives, telling their stories, us listening to their stories and learning from them. That is a subversive act. And I'm not trying to like be, you know, too hokey about it or whatever. But I do think that there's something in that. And I think that like you couldn't ask for a better kind of like mission statement for a writer than that. I don't know. That's why I think he's important to study. Whether or not you believe it, like that's the spirit in which he's writing, you know? So you have to sort of like take him. It's like, okay, if he's writing, like if he's just saying it flat out to you, here's what I have in mind, you know? uh, Yeah. That directness can be great. And uh, yeah, I'm interested because cloud splitter just uh, was, really knocked me out man i like could not believe some of the parts of this book and um sometimes like you you have that experience with like a with an author for the first time and then like you read the rest of it and you're kind of like oh that was like the one that i liked you know like and i so i'm curious to see but like I, that was enough that i will read more by him and i am reading more by him and yeah i think you're right that it's like it's um it's not it's not to say it's not challenging but it's not like written to challenge you on right. the page but it presents as we've hopefully you know displayed like some pretty intense discussions 
it provokes some intense feelings and and like thoughts and uh you know it presents some pretty intense like physical stuff a lot of the time and uh it's just pretty gripping you know on on deep levels that is that's really uh exciting to uh to read interesting guy for sure i agree and you know like i've said we need a michael mann adaptation of the radar harper's ferry we need it we need guys in buggies or strong carts muzzle loaders there there was there was another book and then like a ethan hawk movie oh there was that where where he played john brown yeah it was like like another another novel about him yeah the good lord bird yeah which i have not read i mean neither i have not either but yeah ethan hawk's got that chin he's lanky enough he could totally it's like he was born to play he should, he should just play john brown a few times should, like <laughs> as he gets older well we just cross the several streams here and then just do a paul schrader thing of john brown <laughs> where ethan hawk plays him because you know ethan hawk's been in that paul schrader movie first reformed this is yeah. Per- yeah. Per- yeah it's perfect <laughs> um all right guys Any well, day now we hit two hours man i i <laughs> I, I thought it would be like two hours, but I didn't want to tell y'all that. So I'm glad. We well, did. it's your your obsession has been uh like long and and uh spoken of enough that like your guests <laughs> are beginning to comment on it. I heard that last week, so it's like you needed to do this. You had a lot on your mind with regard. <laughs> yeah, to it Russell was leaking Banks. out into the the, uh-huh. the the normie stuff. I'm just yeah, I'm just here to I'm just happy to be here for you and and and. Uh, <laughs> And take part. It's 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 thank, fun to ride the wave. Thank you for supporting me, friends. Thank you. <laughs> um, John, before we go though, why don't you plug your book and your writing in general? Yeah, thank you. I uh, I my uh, current book is a song for everyone: the story of Creedence Clearwater Revival that came out last year. You should. Uh, read that one however you read it i also had a book come out called home place uh in 2018 uh and then all the articles and stuff i do are on johnlingan.com and i'm on twitter at my name it's it's google it j-o-h-n-l-i-n-g-a-n that's everything there's only one of me from what i can see (laughs) please go check out john um and please go check us out at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. John, as soon as I read the Credence book, I'd love to have you back on. It's just like, you know, I just, uh, I got to read the books first, you know, because I get really nervous if I have people on with that. Yeah, it's a little down the queue with all this Russell Banks he's got <laughs> queued up. Well, I, I think the third a... reading of Cloud Splitter. <laughs> <laughs> believe it or not, it's a story of... Uh... Hard scrabble young men trying to uh, you know follow through on a dream and and testing the limits of what they're willing to 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 risk for it. You know, yeah. uh, if you're detecting a, a, a theme or preoccupation, uh, just, so yeah, one way to look at it. But yeah, I had fun writing it. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, and they were they came by it honestly for they sure. Did. Is CCR the Great American Band? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I would honestly say that like uh the other band that I got like really obsessed about 
on that kind of level while I was writing this because they were also East Bay uh, bands that became part of like the Fillmore that, scene. That everybody fucking, thinks they're from New Orleans. <laughs> it was Sly and the Family Stone, man. Yeah, so like I was, I, I went into this book going like, okay, Credence is like the great American band, whatever that means. But they were just like, they just kicked so much ass in such a brief window and left so uh-huh. much great stuff behind. Um, but then you start listening to more of that stuff and yeah, man, everything by Sly and the Family Stone was just like amazing. Uh-huh. And you listen to it and you're like, oh, this is where like rappers got that move. And like, oh, this is where like R&B 10 years later, eventually, like they were just like, it was it was like, and they had great singles too. It was unbelievable. So, uh, one of those two, something in the water in the in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, uh, around that time. Um, all right, guys, we've been going for two hours. Uh, thank you for all for your patience. We'll leave these people alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, go check out. John thank you Bork. guys. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, good to see you again. It's been like. Five years almost since I've seen your face. I uh, know it's great. I yeah, that was 2019 when I was out there in Whitesburg. 2018 was it really 2018? Because <laughs> oh. Tom was still living here. Oh man, 2018. Wow. Okay. Um. Yeah, but always uh, in my heart, Whitesburg. <laughs> well, thanks for that was a great time. night. That, that was, was, that a, was great. a great time. <laughs> we had a good night. We'll have to do. We'll have to do again. Um. Totally. Totally. All right. Well, uh, well, thank you, boys. And uh, yeah, thanks for having a nice discussion about books on your uh, on your radical podcast. You know, there's uh, we're running out of spaces to talk about these big things. So let's do right. it. <laughs> for whatever reason, our book episodes always do the best. I have no idea why. <laughs> People like books, man. People, People like do. Books. They do on some level. Yeah, yeah. somebody does. Yeah. All right. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, we'll see you all later. Peace out.